Acts 9, could you go there with me? Acts chapter 9. This is a little bit humorous because uh, Caleb Garraway is actually a friend of mine, and so I am going to text him after the service and say, keep writing them, man, I'm getting all the credit. <laughs> this is great. So, Pastor, if you do want a signed copy, I'm sure I could write Garraway on there for you. Okay, Acts chapter 9 is where we were at this evening. I, I was told last night, and I believe this is probably true, that just about everybody in Fort Myers and Bonita Springs, this area, is not from Fort Myers and Bonita Springs. Is that correct? Okay, is there any natives of the Fort Myers, Bonita Springs area? Okay, all right. One proud family. Good. <laughs> so I was curious, because I was thinking, and I want to encourage you all to listen well and pay attention. So I thought, well, I better tell them that the, the Buccaneers game not, is not till 425. But then I thought, there's probably not many Buccaneers fans in this room. Is, is that correct? Any Browns fans? Okay, okay, all right. Uh, any Detroit fans? <laughs> One, okay. <laughs> okay, are there any New England Patriots fans? So I have to, I have to be honest, uh, growing up in New England, I am a dyed-in-the-wool Boston fan, and so I'm actually a very big fan of Tampa Bay right now. <laughs> They're not doing so well, but I do like Tom Brady. So I probably just alienated half the crowd by saying that. Usually that's what happens as soon as I mention New England. Everybody says, we don't listen to this guy. He can't be saved if he likes New England. <laughs> Anyways, okay, so the, I don't know what games are going on at 1 o'clock, so just don't pay attention to those. I'll try to be done before, uh, before halftime for sure. Okay, Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're all familiar with a verse, Luke 19.10. Could you quote it with me? For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay, we're all familiar, at least mostly familiar with that verse. For many years, my relationship to God has been, what can God do? When you look at a verse like Luke 19.10, your conclusion is, oh, God seeks and he saves. That's what he does. And until this summer, that's been the extent of really my knowledge of God. And recently, God began to work on my heart saying, Caleb, I'm not interested in you just knowing what I can do. I want you to know who I am, which is actually a very big difference. You know, if you have a wide receiver that uh, they, they say, man, he can, he's a catching machine and that guy can catch anything. Catching is what he does. Uh, you, you'll put your money on him, uh, in manner of speaking. You say, boy, I think if it's a clutch play in the game, we're going to see if he can, can catch that ball for us. But at the back of all of our minds, we recognize there's a possibility he might fail. He might miss the catch because he's certainly good at catching, but there's human probabilities he could fail. And too often, that's how we viewed God. We've said, well, we think he saves some people and we think he, he pursues some people. That's what he does. But if you only focus on what he does and miss who he is, you can conclude that he might fail this time and not come through. But if you focus on who God is, learn who God is, the very essence, the very nature, the very DNA of God, he could never fail. Here's, here's the reason why we're, why we're in Acts chapter 9. This, this morning, I believe the Lord is leading us to Acts chapter 9 to look at the surprising conversion of Saul. Because I want us to see here this morning that pursuing people is not just what God does, it's who he is. And there's a, it's very important that we as believers get an understanding not just of what God can do, but of the very person, the very nature of God. And here's the reason this is so important. 
If you, anybody recognize the name Oswald Chambers? Anybody know that name, Oswald Chambers? Okay, my utmost for his highest, his name is on that book. That was all excerpts uh, from his preaching and teaching through his lifetime that his wife put into uh, book form after he passed away. From, if I understand correctly, it is the most printed Christian devotional of all time, if I understand that correctly. Uh, probably in a lot of your bathrooms. That's where that book is probably at, okay? At least it was in my family's house. Oswald Chambers, born in Scotland, raised in England, uh, was a man who was incredibly gifted in the arts. In fact, he thought he was supposed to be an artist. And all of his early years, though he was saved at a young boy, all of his early years were given to art, pursuing art. His education was in art. Finally, at age 27, God got a hold of his heart and through an, uh, a point in time, which his biographer calls the dark night of the soul, he went through an agonizing period of trying to really yield himself and coming to a place of yielding himself totally with abandon to God. That was at age 27. At that point, went into full-time ministry, began speaking over in the Americas and also uh, there in England, taking trips to Japan, and he was a, a well-noted speaker. Uh, he started a Bible college in England and, and just a great man of God. Oswald Chambers would die at age 43, and so from 27 to 43, that was only 16 years of usefulness, but in those 16 years, because his life was marked by being abandoned to God, he was used greatly. When World War I broke out, Oswald uh, felt it was his duty, and he volunteered with the YMCA, and the YMCA would send him to Cairo, Egypt, where he would serve there until his death, uh, uh, ministering to the Tommies, the English boys that were there fighting uh, for the empire, as it were, and so he ministered to them, a lot of Frenchmen, Englishmen, Canadians, and so forth. While he was there, there was a young lady that he had, had been his Bible college student, had come to England, or excuse me, come to Cairo, and she was there, and she was, had gotten sick. This was a young lady that Oswald and his wife loved very dearly, uh, a young lady they invested in. Now she is a young girl on her deathbed in the hospital. Oswald and his wife go to meet her and, and visit with her in the hospital, pray with her, but it doesn't look good. It does not seem that she is going to survive. A young lady full of life, but her life is ebbing away. They visit her in the hospital and return home, and there, Biddy, which was Oswald's wife, she's standing over the sink and she remarks in thought, she said, I wonder what God will do. To which Oswald responded, I don't care what God does. I care who he is. Now, the biographer made this statement. At first glance, that seems a callous and cold remark. That Oswald wouldn't care about this young lady. He says, no, that was not the case, for Oswald cared very deeply for this young lady. And listen, here's what the biographer said. But Oswald understood that sometimes what God does is confusing, but who God is, is never confusing. That's the reason why it's so important to understand who God is, because there are times when God allows things, and we scratch our head, and we, we shake our head, and we, we wonder, why in the world? I wouldn't have let this happen if it was up to me. I would have changed if it was up to me. God, why? And it's certainly not wrong to ask those. The psalmist actually asked that many times, but the greatest rest when it comes to say, but I know his character, I know his nature, I know who he is, so though it does not make sense to me, I can trust him. I believe it was Corey Ten Boom that made the statement and said, never struggle to, to trust an unknown future with a known God. And see, too often, immature Christians, well, I should say this is the mark of immaturity, we focus on what God does, and as soon as he rips out the carpet, or it seems the carpet has been ripped out from underneath our feet, we lose faith in him because we can't explain what he does. And what Oswald and every great Christian has ever discovered is, though he slay me, yet 
will I trust him? Why? Because you have some weird loyal? No, 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 no. Because you know who he is. So that comment in Oswald Chambers' biography really stirred in my heart a longing. I want to know God. So that changed my reading of the scriptures. Instead of going to the scriptures and saying, okay, uh, son of man comes to seek and to save that, uh, that which was lost, so he seeks and saves. Instead of just reading that as that's what God does, I began to understand that's not just what he does, it's who he is which was very transformational for my thinking. So we're in Acts chapter nine tonight, this morning, because I want us to see from this text that seeking, pursuing is not just what God does, it's who he is. Look with me in Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one, the surprising conversion of Saul. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell on the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise, go into the street, which is called straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. We're all familiar with Acts chapter nine, aren't we? It's a, where a man who was Saul becomes Paul. It's the mark of the transformation of a man who is unregenerate to a man of being born again. It is an incredible story, but I've titled this the surprising conversion of Saul. You say, why? There's nothing surprising about a man getting saved, but it is for this man. Because if I was God, I wouldn't have saved Saul. But God, who is a pursuing God, chose to pursue this man because pursuit is who God is. It's why he came. The very beginning of our passage, we are, uh, see a man who is not a godly man. In fact, he's a man who his entire religion and his entire education, his entire life has been bent on destroying the name Jesus Christ. He hates the religion of Jesus. He hates the followers of Jesus. And in Saul's mind, every person who claims the name of Jesus is a fraud because they're who they follow is also a fraud and he's bent on rooting them out and exposing the hypocrisy of Christianity. 
And so in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we see Saul, a man who has received legal sanction. He has all the authority of the government to go and to persecute and destroy anyone who claims the name of Jesus. This is not a man who in the time of America uh, would be stopped by the government or be stopped by the Second Amendment or be stopped by the, uh, the legal system. No, he has full authority. There's no one stopping him. In fact, his reputation of a man who hates Christianity and his brutal violence has spread. Everyone knows about him. And now this man is on his way to destroy, snuff out, persecute anything that has to do with Jesus. What would you do with Saul if you were God? See, we read of persecution in the East. History tells us of even persecution here in the Americas. And oftentimes our conservatism rises up and say, I'd kill the the wretch, or I'd put him in prison, or I'd incarcerate him, but God says, I pursue them. Here in verse 3, Paul is on his way to Damascus, hating the name Jesus, and yet Jesus is pursuing him. Suddenly, the middle of verse 3, the scripture says, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Verse 4, and he, being Paul, fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And at this point, Paul, we don't know if he fell off a horse, a camel, or simply he was walking, but now he's laying a prostrate on the ground, looking up as the light is so bright beyond anything he has ever experienced. He's laying there under this glow and he's trying to figure out what's going on and he hears his name from heaven. That'd rattle you a little bit, wouldn't it? And he's laying there hearing his name and he calls out, uh, who art thou? And God says, I am Jesus. Consider what that name must have done to Saul. That's the name he hates. It's the name he wants to snuff out. It's the name he heard a man named Stephen praying about. It's the name he hates, and now he's saying, Saul, I am Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. Notice the heart of Jesus. If someone persecutes you in your, nat uh, in your natural flesh, what do you do to persecutors? Eye for an eye, right? We get back at them, and yet Jesus says, you persecute me, I'm going to pursue you because of love. He says, Saul, I am Jesus. Thou persecutest. And this is the phrase that gets me. It's hard for thee, Saul, to kick against the bricks. You know, do you see what Jesus is indicating to Saul? He's telling, you, telling Saul, Saul, I've been pursuing you. I'm after you, Saul. I want you. I want your soul. I want your spirit. I want you. And I've been putting a lot of things in your way to try to show you I'm drawing you. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. I'm sure all of us are familiar with what the pricks are. They would have been, it would have been a, a long ox goad. Are you all familiar with that? It's a, a long slender stick with a pointed end and, and the farmer would have used that long goad and he would have used it to try to get the attention of the animal to direct him uh, whatever way he desired. Now, is there, is there anybody here who's ever worked with, with cattle or animals at all? Okay, a couple, a few of you. Okay, um, how smart are cows? <laughs> They're some of the dumbest animals I've ever been around. If anybody else has done anything with cows, and my grandfather was a dairy farmer. My dad, for the first part of his life, was, was a dairy farmer. And these the stories that they tell about trying to get a cow's attention, uh, to us, it sounds almost cruel, but that's just how you get an animal's attention. In fact, my grandfather would often carry a nail in his pocket, and he would use that, that uh, if, if he couldn't get the cow's attention, I want you to go that way. He'd take that nail and jam it into the back flank of the cow, and, and you think, whoa, and the cow would just kind of be like, oh, 
You wanted me? I mean, it's just, they're just very habitual, very dumb. They don't think very much. And so uh, the, the ox goad, the idea is that you jam that in the back of it. It's a little bit painful, but it's all to get their attention, not to hurt them, but you're trying to get their attention. Look, there's someone who's coming after you that wants you to go a direction. In fact, my, my grandfather told me one time there was a cow coming down one of the aisles in the, in the cow barn and it was coming right towards him because he was, he was uh bewildered and didn't know what was, where he was out and the cow was running at him. And my grandfather had a two by four and he literally broke a two by four across the cow's face. And it was just kind of like, oh, I needed to stop. Like that's just, they're not smart animals. And so the, the ox goad was used to inflict pressure and pain to say, I'm trying to get your attention. And this is what Jesus is telling Paul. Saul, have you been feeling the pricks? I'm pursuing you. See, we don't exactly know what the pricks are, but we do know in two chapters previous, when Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin and he begins filled with the Holy Ghost, begins to preach with power, the scripture tells us that all the men in that dwelling place that heard his preaching were pricked in their hearts. Convicted by the words of Stephen as he is claiming a risen Savior whom thou hast destroyed. You persecuted, you crucified. Stephen with boldness is preaching about a risen Savior, and the men are convicted. They stop their ears and run on him to murder him. And there, Stephen, on his knees, as the, the rocks begin to fall, Stephen looks up with a face radiating, a glow with the presence of Jesus, and calls out, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now think about this. To every one of those Jewish leaders, Saul included, they do not believe Jesus is the son of God and they certainly don't believe he's alive. And Stephen just claimed his deity and his resurrection. And he, looking up into heaven, cries out at the presence of Jesus Christ. And then these next words, repeating very similar words to his savior, calls out, God, do not lay this charge, the charge of my murder, do not lay that on their account. I'm sure for every religious man who had stood at the cross that day, who watched Jesus cry out with the exact same words, and there now Stephen, who is not dying a death like they are used to seeing, Stephen, who is dying a martyr's death of joy, he finally falls and dies as the rocks pummel him. And there Saul, consenting to his death, he's all about it. He's holding the garments. He's watching this man die, and it's an unusual death. I wonder how it must have pricked his soul. See, at the outward glance, we say, yeah, but he didn't, he didn't get converted. He didn't fall down and say, what must I do to be saved? No, I, nothing's happening. But God was at work, pricking the soul of Saul. And now Saul is laying flat on his back and God reveals to him and reveals to us, Saul, I've been pursuing you. You felt it and you've been resisting it. And so I press harder. And Saul, the reason I am doing it is because I'm pursuing you. And before the chapter is over, Saul would choose to put his faith in Jesus Christ, believing now he is the son of God, believing he is a risen savior. And by the time we get down to uh, the, the conversation with Ananias, Saul is a saved man. Now it's interesting, Ananias, his response when he hears about Saul, his response is, are we sure we're talking about the same Saul? <laughs> because I don't think Saul's getting saved. I mean, this guy, he, he is bent on destroying Christianity and what he didn't realize is God's a pursuing God. Brothers and sisters, there's probably a lot of you that could give a testimony of the fact that 
it was many years while God was pursuing me. He placed someone in my path and someone witnessed me and someone at work. And finally, after all this, God brought me to a place of humility where I finally cried out in, in saving faith and God pursued you. Some of you have that testimony of God pursuing you, but isn't it amazing how we think that was just my story and forget that that's exactly what God is doing all around us? See, he is an initiating God. If ever our relationship uh, is based on anybody, it's based on him. Him pursuing me and me responding to him. Luke 19.10 tells us he is seeking to save that which was lost. Now, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, no intention of pursuing God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That shows he's pursuing us. John 3, 16, pastor quoted it earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What that's telling us is God in his love and his goodness because it's his very nature saw the sinfulness of man, knowing man would not choose Jesus Christ. And so God pursued mankind so that they would be saved. That's for salvation. Do you know in the Christian life, it's the exact same way. First John tells us, we love him. Why? See, God's nature is pursuit. He pursues to save. He pursues to sanctify. He pursues to draw you into relationship. The conviction that ever I have felt over my sin is because God is not letting me go. He's pursuing me. In fact, all through Jesus Christ's ministry, you see his pursuit. It's not just Acts chapter nine. You know how many of his disciples came up to Jesus and said, hey, Lord, we've heard you're a great teacher. Can you pick me? No, what did he do? He came to his disciples and said, you, I want you. I want you. You, and bring your brother. I want you. God's a pursuing God. Think about the case of Jonah. If I was God, you know what I would do with Jonah? I'd say, Jonah, I can find another prophet to do my work. They're a dime a dozen. You failed me. I don't need you any longer. But what does God do for Jonah? Pursues him. And to Jonah, it kind of feels like God's trying to kill him, doesn't it? Storm rises up. Man, this is painful. Gets thrown overboard. Fish swallows him. Three days in the belly of the whale. That doesn't look anything pleasant. And maybe Jonah's thinking, Lord, if this is pursuit, I'm not really digging it. But how many times... Does God's pursuit because of our pride, our resistance, and our stubbornness take some pressure? There are too many believers who have left churches because God was pursuing, and yet because they didn't know who God was, they mistakenly mis they mistook it for God being angry with them. It's amazing how many times we have thought the bad things that have happened to us because God's against us, God's after us, and it may be that God's actually just trying to pursue you. And there he finally meets with Jonah, not letting Jonah go to his own devices of being cast overboard. God keeps pursuing him, keeps pursuing him, keeps pursuing him until he finally brings Jonah to a place of usefulness, not for Jonah's sake, but for God's sake and Jonah's sake together. What about Peter? Jesus pursued Peter, calling him to be a disciple, and then poured three and a half years into Peter, giving him the, the, the game plan. Hey, look, Peter, I've come to die, and I'm gonna die someday, and it's coming clear, and you're gonna forsake me. And Peter's saying, no, Lord, that's not possible. And then the night comes when he's betrayed, and Peter runs. If you were Jesus after pouring three and a half years into someone, you gave them the book, you gave them the test, and they still failed the open book test, what would you do with Peter? I'd say, Peter, I, don't, I wouldn't trust you with anything, not even my dog. And yet Jesus trusts Peter with the church. 
And Jesus, knowing where Peter is going to be at, because Peter kind of finally comes to the place where he said, it's too far gone. I failed the Lord too much. I can't be used. I'm going back to fishing. And so the Lord says, uh-huh, and I know which shore you're gonna be on. And I'm gonna meet you. Come, Peter, come and dine. I've already prepared a meal and I've brought the food. All you need to do is come because I'm pursuing. Know what he does with Thomas? Thomas missed him in the upper room. If I was God, I might've said, Thomas, hey, that's what happens when you miss out on me. You don't get me. But the Lord said, I want Thomas. And I know what Thomas is gonna do someday. But right now, Thomas is unbelief and Thomas needs to be in faith. So I'm gonna pursue Thomas. So what does he do? He goes to the next time where Thomas is in the room and comes to Thomas. And I do not believe it was snarky or unkind. He simply says, Thomas, come and touch and feel. Not because he's trying to make fun of Thomas, because he wants Thomas to have faith. Thomas, I want to be confirmed in your mind that I am Jesus. I am the Lord. I am resurrected. I have power. If you have to come and touch, do it. But Thomas, I want you. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that God is a pursuing God? He is at work constantly around us, but he's pursuing you. I was preaching at a church in Atlanta and I was mentioning several of these things and afterwards one of the ladies came to me and she said, this radically changes how I pray. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, I have a daughter who's away from the Lord and I have prayed and I have prayed and I've asked the Lord to, to draw her back, but I've gotten, it's taken so long and it doesn't seem God is doing anything. She said, I've grown disillusioned with it and I've stopped praying. She said, but that's because I thought I had to get him to do his work. But if he is already a pursuing God, you know what my prayer life is? My prayer life is simply joining him in what he's already doing. It's simply saying, Lord, you're pursuing your children on a regular basis. So Father, here's another child and I'm gonna join you since you're already pursuing her. This wasn't my idea. It, too often we try to drum up business for God. Like, hey God, there's someone I'm really burdened for. Have you heard about him recently? This, this one, yeah, this is the one. Could you start working on him? And that's how we pray, thinking that the only way they'll be reached is if we labor in prayer for them. And if, and if, if, if I don't labor, and if I fail in laboring, they'll never be reached. Now, under, church, understand, church, understand this. I, I do not understand all the ways of how prayer works because prayer has power. But the truth is the only reason I have faith to pray is because of his goodness in pursuing. Not because I got a grand idea. Oh, here's someone he ought to like. He's already at work. It would change the way you begin to pray. Lord, my grandchild, if you are a pursuing God, if you don't stop, Lord, if you come after them, then Father, would you continue? You know what Luke chapter 15, in Luke 15, there's three different parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coins, and the parable of the lost son. You're familiar with those parables. Do you know what all three parables are trying to teach? All of them are teaching pursuit. The parable of the lost sheep, 100 sheep, he loses one. And in America, you know what we do? We just cut our losses. Well, I lost one. I mean, that's the price of doing business, isn't it? At least I've got 99, but God says, not me. I'm gonna set aside the 99 in a safe place because I want the one. A woman with 10 coins, she loses one. Here in America, we just say, well, you know, that's just inflation, just mark of business. And yet she sets aside the nine coins to pursue the one and she'll go to the nth degree to sweep the house, to look through the house, whatever it takes because she wants the one. We have a pursuing father in the prodigal son. 
the boy has left, and yet the father, father is on the front doorstep watching the crest of the hill. If my boy would just come, I will forgive. Give me an opportunity, son. You just cross that hill, and I will pursue you. And the father does not sit there on the front porch and say, okay, boy, if you really want forgiveness, you come and grovel. He, he doesn't, he's not down in the butcher shop where the boy comes to him and says, hey, dad, I really need a confession. No, the father who is representing the heavenly father, as soon as he sees the repentant son, he takes off running. The young boy who has all the athletic ability is not doing the running. The old man who represents God's doing the running because God is trying to show us, I, as a father, pursue my people. Boy, brothers and sisters, if we really believed that, it would change the way we view God, wouldn't it? It would actually change the way we pray. It would change the way we confess, wouldn't it? If we believed that he was pursuing us. Now, I want to do something here. I want to give a quick illustration that I, I think maybe would help, uh, help us. Brother Nick, can I ask you to come up here? So I usually pick the most handsome guy in the church for this <laughs> illustration, but you'll do. That's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we're going we're gonna to stand over here. Okay, can you all see okay up here? All right, Nick is going to represent us as believers, and I'm going to represent God. Every single one of us have found ourselves in positions of disobedience, sin, disregarding the Spirit's prompting, making a decision of disobedience. And every time we do that, whenever we've stiff-armed God, there is separation, there's a breakdown in the relationship between father and child. And so when we do, let's just say Nick, he's, he's a believer, but he makes, say, on, on Friday night, Friday day went, went bad. Just the whole, all day long, uh, someone lost one of his favorite tools, and then a tuck, truck blew, blew a tire, and it's just been a rough day. And instead of turning to the Lord, he, like most of us naturally do, gets frustrated, pulls out the credit card, and then overcharges the credit card, and he's just having a bad evening. And, and at that point, he comes home, and instead of going to the Lord and laying out his griefs, uh, he just sits in the, at the TV and veges out watching television Friday night. And he sees some things that are ungodly, and he doesn't turn it off. He doesn't change channels. He just fills himself because we've all been there appeasing the flesh. So at this point, by the time he turns off the television on Friday night, he's not made the right decisions. He turns off the television on Friday night. At this point, I'm going to orient you away. Um, turn Just turn like this. There is a definite feeling of being distant from the Father. And let's just say it, he doesn't make it right the next morning, and so uh, the next morning he doesn't read his Bible, doesn't take some time with the Lord, and, and just goes off to work early, and he's just frustrated, and someone makes someone mad, and, and he just has a rage and yells something he shouldn't have, and at this point, go ahead and take another step away from me, he feels he's still so far from God, and it's just spiraling out of control. And, and let's just say in the afternoon, he makes another decision of disobedience, and he takes another step away from God. And, and by the time it's Saturday night, he feels so far from God. And maybe uh, for too many men, this has been a, it is today a very big problem. Let's just say on Saturday night, he's so empty, he's so miserable. He gets online and looks at some things, some, uh, some viewing that he should never have looked at. And, and so now he takes another step away. And by the time Sunday morning rolls around, he just feels so ugly, wicked, and sinful. And at this point, we've all found ourselves, those sins I mentioned, they not, may not be what you struggled with, but we've all found ourselves just feeling far from God. 
And, and preachers, well-meaning preachers will sometimes say, if, if you feel far from God, who moved? Now, the truth is, God is not the one that resists you in the sense of he doesn't walk away from you. If ever I have sinned, it was my choice. And so that is true that if I feel far from God, it was me that made the decisions of moving. But too often that phrase communicates to us a message that God's far and aloof. And therefore, as the believer who has, has, feels far away from God, he then has to try to get his act together and, and read his Bible for three days in a row and, and make up with his wife and, and, and do better at the workplace. And then finally, after he catches up and does all the right things, then God, he gets back to God and now they can keep walking together. But church family, that doesn't work. Because the self-effort from there to here It's all self, it yields self, which is carnality. And we live our Christian life trying to prove to God that he should forgive us, prove to God we're worth forgiving. That imagery is incredibly discouraging. But what I believe the true imagery of God being a pursuing God is that the believer here, he makes his decision on Friday night, orients himself away. Okay, hold on, come back here. Uh, Nick, you're one step ahead of me. Okay, so on Friday night, He makes his decision. He resists the spirit, veggies out on the television. He gets up from the television. We've all felt this. You know you just wasted four hours and you just feel guilty. And at that point, he knows he's oriented himself away from God. He's Saturday morning. He takes a step of disobedience away from God. And I believe a pursuing God pursues him. God has not entered into sin but he's after his child. And Saturday afternoon, his child makes another step of disobedience. And the father, longing to forgive, is right behind him. And he takes another step of disobedience, and at this point, he feels so far from God, but please do not miss this. If God is a pursuing God, if you feel far from God, he is not far from you. See, all God is calling is for me to humble myself. And as soon as I humble myself, do you know what I find? Not a long road of me trying to get everything right, get my act together, my ducks in a row, and prove to him that I'm really a good Christian. I find the presence of Jesus right there. Now, are there repercussions from the decisions of sin? Absolutely. But Jesus Christ is there to walk you through them. Look, the journey of forgiveness and reconciliation was never meant to be lived on our own. The journey of forgiveness and reconciliation is who God is. So he says, why would you leave me out of it? This is what I came for. Forgiveness is his very DNA. If you strip away everything about Jesus Christ and try to find out what's he made of, it's revealed on the cross when he cries out, Father, forgive them. That's who he is. So if he is a pursuing God, he's longing to forgive us if we would but let him. Thank you, Nick, you can go down. Church family, here's what I want us to understand. Our Jesus is not a passive God. Our Jesus did not set the world into its system of spinning and then backed up and said, okay, if you really want me, come find me. That's not who he is. He turned it, he created the world and then put his fingerprints all over and put his spirit in mankind and is pursuing every single one of us so that we would know him. Because pursuit is who he is. I want to finish with this. Church family, it would also change the way you witness to people. 
if you would begin to realize that God, who is a pursuing God, is at work all the time and is at work on your behalf and in this city and around you, pursuing people to bring them to Christ. And if you would simply join his work, the fields are white unto harvest. Ananias, he's at his home. And the Lord comes to him and says, hey, Ananias. Oh, yes, yes, Lord. Ananias, um, Saul of Tarsus is down on Straight Street in Justice's house. I'd like you to go down there and talk to him. He's waiting for you. In fact, he's praying. Lord, are you sure about that? I don't think we're talking about the same Saul. And Lord, I don't think he'd get saved. And the Lord's saying, yeah, I'm at work. Ananias, I want you to join me in what I'm already doing. If God is a pursuing God, that same gift, that same opportunity is open to us all. See, when I began to look at this passage and realize Ananias is no great Christian, all he did was heard the voice of God and obeyed and walked into one of the greatest soul winning experiences he's ever had. But so often we go out on a door knocking on Saturday trying to drum up business for God and we jam our foot in their door to try to edge in a conversation to try to convince them they need to be saved and when they slam the door in our face, we say, well, you can burn in hell. (laughs) Church family, there have been whole ministries that have been built around that model and it's pure carnality. Do you know what a life of rest is? It's going out and doing your daily thing and saying, now, Father, You're at work everywhere. I'd like to join you. One one Christian writer put it this way. He said, one of the greatest joys of the Christian experience is daily seeing God at work. Not daily doing my thing for God, but daily joining him in what he's already doing. As the Lord began to deal with me about this passage, saying, Lord, if this is true, Lord, are you sure this is true? Is Is there anywhere else in scripture? Oh, Yeah, the Ethiopian eunuch. Hey, Philip, I've got someone I'm working on. Why don't you come join me? Philip didn't walk up there and convince him with his uh, deep understanding of the Hebrew law. He just walked up and said, hey, what you reading? I'm actually reading Isaiah. And I don't have anybody explain this to me. Can you explain to me? Oh, I could do that. All Philip did was join what God is doing. As I began to go through this and think, Lord, if this is possible, Lord, if this is possible, show me. I want to see this at work. Earlier this summer, I was flying from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina to Denver, Colorado. Got ready. I just finished a week of camp that I was preaching, and so I went to my flight there in Charlotte. This is July, so this is just, well, it's a few months now, but not too long ago. I'm sitting there in the terminal and, and it's packed with people because it was a delayed flight. And so I, I'm on the phone with my dad and I was just telling him how the week went and there's people crowded in all around me. And I thought, well, um, they're going to hear about how camp went. So I just talked out loud to my dad. Oh yeah, look, man, this guy got saved and this guy got right and had a great divine appointment with here and, and just talking about spiritual things. And now they're starting to board. I, hey, dad, I, I got to go. Okay, we'll see you, son. And so I close the phone and I'm unplugging my charger and there's a charger over here and, and there's a lady sitting there. I said, ma'am, uh, ma'am, is this your charger here? I don't want, I don't want you to free. She, oh, that's, that's not my charger. I said, okay, no problem. And she says, are you a pastor? And I, I, I'm not, but I knew what she was trying to say, you know, a, a man, a minister. And so I said, yes, yes, ma'am, I, I'm a preacher. And she goes, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation. And she said, that so resonated in my spirit. She said, man, I've got so many spiritual struggles that we're working through right now, and I don't know how to approach God on this and that. I'm thinking, man, this is, this is great. So I start talking to her a little bit, and they're boarding. And, the, and I, okay, I said, ma'am, read this, read this tract if you can, and uh, uh, 
ask the Lord to, sh- to open your eyes and show you. Oh, I, I got to get on my plane. Okay, yeah, very good. So I, I run and get on my plane, and I'm thinking, man, that's great. God's at work there. I mean, that was just incredible. God's at work. So I sit down in my seat, and uh, the guy sitting in the, at the window there, and I thought maybe I'll talk with him a little bit, and I'm one of the last people on the plane. And uh, I look up, and the girl I had been talking to in the terminal is walking down the aisle and stops right there, and she says, I'm seated next to you. And I thought, now that's of the Lord. And so she sits down. I said, well, this, this has got to be divine. She, oh, man, this can't be a coincidence, she said. So we talk a little bit more. And it's okay, this is a red-eye flight. So yeah, I'm going to sleep too. Okay, put my pillow on, earbuds in, sit back. And the Holy Spirit said, what are you doing? Oh, that's right, Lord, what am I doing? <laughs> Pull the pillow off. And I said, ma'am, because in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to wake up these people around me. I, I struggle with fear sometimes too. I don't want to wake up these people around me. And it was like the Holy Spirit said, could you have asked for a more clear opportunity? Like Ananias, straight street, get there. So, okay, okay. I said, hey, hey, um, she pulls her earbuds out. I said, I'm sorry, I have, I have one more question I must ask you. I cannot let you go to sleep until I ask you this question. She goes, oh, good, I have a couple to ask you. And so I go through the gospel with her and I believe she had actually trusted Christ already as a 12-year-old in, in a non-denominational church in Denver. Uh, she gave a clear understanding of salvation, but she's just never grown. So for the next two and a half hours of our flight, I'm working through passages with her. She's, her parents have gone through a divorce and it's just been very painful. So I'm working through passages with her, trying to help her with some of these things. And I walked off that plane thinking, man, I got to see God at work. Father, I want to experience that even more. The next week, I'm parked at a church in Atlanta. And I was preaching the Sunday and the Wednesday, but not during the rest of the week. I'm doing my devotions out there by my trailer, sitting outside in my camp chair, reading my Bible in a large church parking lot. And, and this car rolls in. And, and it's a, one of those parking lots where a lot of people come in and turn around. And, and yet this car came in and didn't turn back out. It just sat there. And I see it out of the corner of my eye. And I look up and I see the car's tilted because there's a blown tire. I thought, well, I know how to change tires and I'm a preacher. So I'm going to do what a good Samaritan would do, but Lord, I want to see where you're at work. So I walk up to the car and, and uh, oh man, this is bad. I have tires blown and the car looked like trash. And so I, you got a spare. I, I got a spare. He runs to the trunk, pulls out the spare. There's wires poking out through the, through the rubber. He says, I think if I can get two miles down the road, I think, bro, you're not going to get out of the parking lot with that tire. Like just, he puts it back in his trunk for later use, I guess. So that's okay. We're, we're going to get you a new tire and I need, my wife needs to get to work. And I, okay. I grabbed my wife. I said, okay, you take our vehicle, take her to work, and he and I will get the tire off. When you come back, we'll get him a tire. I'll say, so they leave to take the wife to work, and he starts shaking his head. He goes, I just can't believe this. I said, what? He goes, I just can't believe it. I said, what's going on? He says, you're a preacher? I said, yes, I am. He said, I'm a self-made man. I'm in the entertainment industry. I always fix my problems. He's from the hoods of Ontario. Got out of the hood in the music industry and came down to the States to make money, and he's done well. Until this last year, when the American consulate shut down his, his work visa and telling him, okay, you got three, two months to be deported back to Canada. He said, I have tried everything. He said, in my whole life, I've always fixed my problems. And this year, I can't fix any of my problems. They increase, they get worse, and I can't do anything about it. He said, I've never struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts like I have this year. He said, that's not me, but this year, I can't get out of any of my problems. And my wife told me this morning, you need to talk to a preacher. He said, I'm putting on my shoes this morning. I'm just shaking my head. I'm so frustrated. She says, Joel, she said, I'm gonna call churches. I'm gonna find some church where some preacher can talk to you because you need to talk to somebody. Honey, I don't need it. They get into the car. She continues on like good wives do. (laughs) You need to talk to a preacher. You need to talk to a preacher. I don't need to. Boom. Tire blows. 
Joel, pull over. First parking lot he pulls into is Canaan Baptist Church and there's a preacher parked there. Coincidence? The marks of a pursuing God. We're in the truck going back to get him a tire. I said, Joel, I said, why do you think God blew your tire? Man, I have no idea. He said, if you could tell me, that'd be awesome. I said, I think I can tell you. 30 minutes later, or we went back to the church, went into the church lobby, sat down for 30 minutes and led him to Christ with tears rolling down his face. And I walked out of there saying, God, all I did was go down to straight street. I, I obeyed his prompting, but I walked into what you are already doing. Church family, there are people everywhere. Not because I've experienced it, because the Bible says so who God is actively pursuing and he put them parked right next to you. He put them in the house next to you. He put them in the person walking by your sidewalk who has great needs and God says, just be sensitive. I'm not asking you to drum up business for me. I'm asking you just be sensitive to where I'm already working. I missed an opportunity last month. Grieved me. I'm pushing my kids at a, a park. My wife's getting groceries. I'm pushing the kids, pushing the kids. This guy yells across the park. He says, hey, bro. So yeah, he says, Man, that really helps me. He's yelling across the park. So, okay. <laughs> he says, my wife just divorced me two weeks ago. Took my kids. Watching you push your kids. He says, it helps my heart. And then walked away. And the Holy Spirit said, Caleb, there was a man who was hurting and you missed it. You know why? Because I wasn't on duty because I'd lost sight that he's a pursuing God. I'm just, church family, I went through the gospel, the full gospel with a Catholic man on a flight yesterday. My first flight, I didn't witness to anybody because no one got, God did not give me an opportunity. I said, Lord, I just want to see where you're working. You show me. Couple next to me, they're not uh, in tune to spiritual things. They're talking fine. Lord, you just keep showing me. I'm not going to be worried about proving my spirituality by how many people I witness to. I just want to see where you're working. Next flight, guy sits down next to me. He says, hey, I'm going to get a surgery here soon. And I said, I'll put this mask on. I don't want to get COVID. I, hey, whatever. No, no worries. I'm, uh, so we start talking. And uh, uh, he said, you're a preacher? I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. And we start talking. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, you go to church? That was my first question. Oh, yeah. I grew, you know, Catholic, grew up Catholic. I said, you still practicing Catholic? Ah, probably not as I sh- much as I should be. I said, no, that's fine. <laughs> I, mean, you should, I don't want you to be. Uh, <laughs> and then just went right into the gospel with him. And he's sitting there visibly shaken. He said, I'm not used to thinking like this. I, I, he goes, I really, think, I really think I'll trust Jesus and I need to do something. He said, it's a little bit different than what you said. I said, it's the difference, sir, of two eternities. You will die and go to hell that way. He said, I, I got to think about this. I said, that's all I want you to do. I gave him a tract. I said, you need to read the book of John. It's, these are not my ideas. These are Jesus's. And I walked away saying, that's my God because he's a pursuing one. It's not just what he does, church family, it's who he is. Could we join him? Could I ask you all to bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Brothers and sisters, God has placed you in Bonita Springs, Fort Myers, the area around here, because he wants to show you his mighty works. He wants you to join him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you need to confess something to him. And right now you're in the middle of trying to prove for the next three days that you're a good enough Christian, that you're worthy to be forgiven. And you just need to humble yourself and just let him forgive you.
Maybe there's some of you that have given up on praying about someone and you need to just take that back to the Lord and say, Father, you're already working. That's awesome. Let me join that. Maybe there's someone that God is about to this week, even this afternoon when you go to the restaurant, the Lord is about to show you. Here's someone I'm working in. Join me. Let's be on duty. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's all stand. If you're physically able, can we stand together? The piano is going to play, and you just do business with the Lord. If you can come forward, if you'd like to, if you'd like to sit back down in your seat. But if the Lord spoke to you there as you are, just do business with him. Lay your needs before him. Call out to him and say, Father, I'm not used to seeing you at work. Show me. He'll do it. But let's join him in what Jesus is already doing. As the piano plays, you just do business with the Lord. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.